0: With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal.
1: Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. I am on the grounds of the 2023 World Egg Expo at the International Agro Center in Tulare, For the three days of the show, and I'm really excited to walk the grounds and take a look at the latest in ag technology and innovation, as well as join in on some of those seminars and get the latest updates with the Farm Bill Listening Session. Stay tuned to Agnet West and this radio station as we will provide you with coverage from all three days of the show right here on Agnet West and your radio station. But until then, let's go ahead and take a listen to today's show headlines. Some data collected from the on-farm readiness review. More after the break. Led by NASDA, the On-Farm Readiness Review points out areas of improvement when it comes to the produce safety rule. Don Stuckel with the Produce Safety Alliance shares some of the data collected.
2: It's called the On-Farm Readiness Review. That's a program that's um, that's led by NASDA, the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. They, they do it in collaboration with Extension, and Rutgers University, I believe, is the lead on the Extension side of that. And so th- one of the data sheets that I showed at the, uh, at the conference was Meredith Melendez, who, has, who is a Rutgers University Extension professor. Meredith shared some data that showed that on 1,300 visits to farms as part of the on-farm readiness review across the country, across commodities, almost 10% of them in the viewpoint of the people who visited the farm they found that the, uh, the restrooms and hand-washing facilities weren't up to expectations under produce safety rule. So one of the benefits of the on-farm readiness review is it's more or less a pressure test. It's an opportunity for the farm to have a no-fault visit by professionals in, in produce safety who will come and then point out to the farm this is where you may be lacking. You may want to do some things about this before you undergo the inspection.
1: And now here's Brian German with more agriculture news.
3: Taking a systems approach to soil health can help to mitigate and prevent a variety of problems. Scott Park of Park Farming Organics explained they don't single out individual aspects of production, but take a whole package view of strengthening soil health.
4: It gets the soil health, and so then we have the thing, 9Cs, where we're using, we're giving equal value almost to cover crops, crop rotation, compost, conservation tillage, conserving inputs, crew care, critter cover and and taking care of the borders and control traffic where everything's run on sub one inch and we never run anything pressing down. We have all our beds on 60 inches. We don't change it and, and we never compact over the bed. Plus growing the cover crops keeps the bed loose. And so all of this adds to a very healthy environment that lets the plants and the roots develop their own symbiotic relationship and we try and micromanage as little as possible.
3: After the recent flooding on the Central Coast, the California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement has a post-flood response and remediation webinar to assist producers. The webinar features a presentation from Dr. Trevor Suslow, Professor Emeritus with UC Davis Cooperative Extension and Applied Research. The hour-long video covers a variety of topics, including risk differentiation when considering flood conditions, as well as sampling practices for flood water and wells. Dr. Suslow also goes over flood impacts on soil and soil testing conditions and also cites research examples from past rapid flood response. A link to the webinar is available on the Food Safety Resources tab at lgma.ca.gov. Along with the webinar, the California LGMA also has a host of other resources for flood remediation and prevention on their webpage. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network.
1: Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of today's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices.
0: Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with FELS posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated, weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net.
1: Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Neal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight.
5: In today's National Spotlight, the Senate Agriculture Committee continues holding farm bill hearings. This week's hearing will be on Thursday and is on the nutrition programs. Last week's hearing was on commodity programs, crop insurance, and credit. In her opening statement, Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow of Michigan discussed changes
6: since the 2018 Farm Bill. Global events can cause dramatic swings in commodity prices, risking farmers' livelihoods, and harming communities. The climate crisis has made this threat even more dire for farmers across the country. I'm proud of common-sense bipartisan reforms this committee has implemented over the last two Farm Bills to make the Farm Safety Net fair and more equitable for all farmers. We ended direct payments that either paid too much or too little, regardless of actual losses. We placed a focus on risk management and improved crop insurance options, created new tools like permanent livestock disaster programs, and expanded coverage for underserved farmers through the non-insured crop disaster assistance program. We added more crops and improved upon new coverage options like whole farm insurance for diversified producers. We created the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program to protect against both price and yield loss. I'm also part of the work of this committee and what we've done to secure the dairy safety net. In the 2018 Farm Bill, we dramatically improved support for dairy producers and expanded crop insurance options for dairy. So a lot has changed, though, since the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill. We've seen nearly $70 billion in ad hoc assistance to producers outside of the Farm Bill programs. And this is something we need to look at in terms of need and what's happened and, and as we go forward on all of these important programs. Over the last three years, we've seen 50 individual billion-dollar weather in climate disaster events. Think about that, 50 different events. And this has led to $13 billion in ad hoc disaster assistance for our farmers. Trade wars started by the last administration caused dramatic drops in crop prices and resulted in $23 billion in ad hoc trade and payments to producers. And the pandemic assistance packages passed by Congress delivered more than $31 billion dollars and assistance to our producers. I raised many concerns during these ad hoc programs uh, to make sure that they were distributed fairly and it was concerned at that time that they were not distributed fairly, and that's something we certainly going forward are, are going to be um, keeping an eye on to make sure it's, it is fair. Uh, we're not interested in picking winners and losers or favoring certain crops over others and, or fun, funneling money to larger operations over smaller farms. And this was something that was confirmed by the Government Accounting Office, and so we want to make sure we're, we are moving forward in the right way, and I'm sure we will. She also highlighted what she
5: calls gaps in coverage for farmers.
6: There are still gaps in the farm safety net as farmers continue to face global market uncertainty and climate-fueled weather disasters. While many commodity prices are at historic highs, which is good, we also know that land and fertilizer and input costs are also near record highs. We need to work together to create a farm safety net that is responsive to the needs of all of our farmers. Crop insurance is the number one risk management tool for producers, but historically hasn't been available to some farmers who are most in need of it.
5: That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West.
1: Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's livestock report, here's Randall Wiseman.
7: Well, in today's livestock news, we told you yesterday that new numbers show U.S. beef exports set annual records for both volume and value last year. New numbers put out by USDA that were compiled by the U.S. Meat Export Federation note that beef exports was up 2% from the previous high in 2021. USMEF President and CEO Dan Holstrom said beef export value reached $11.68 billion. That's up 10% from the year before, nearly 40% above previous five-year average.
8: On the beef side, 2022 finished up a record year as expected we were up a couple percent on volume and uh, set a new record by far on the value at $11.7 billion in exports. Broad-based growth continues to be the theme. We had records set in several markets, including China, Korea, and several others. What makes the record even more impressive is that we had quite a few headwinds, and there was probably none bigger than the strong U.S. dollar, especially uh, in October and November of last year. So that combined with the remaining COVID impact Korea and Japan and China had pretty severe um, restrictions around COVID. Uh, May, uh, Japan and Korea were relaxed, but it was December before China was relaxed. So suffice it to say that food service was decimated in China and it's pretty darn slow in Japan and Korea. So I think going into 2023, there's reason around optimism for a rebound on the food service side.
7: Now, the U.S. exported a record share of its record large beef production in 2022 and at higher prices. Now, pork exports finished last year on a decidedly upward trajectory. December shipments at a little over 244,000 metric ton were up 13% year-over-year and the second largest of 2022. Hallstrom says there are two stories when it comes to the pork side.
8: The pork side ended up the year uh, actually in pretty good shape compared to how slow it started out. We're down a little over 8% year-on-year, but it was the third largest value year ever for exports. There's two stories on the pork side for the year. Number one is Mexico, fabulous year with record growth. The other side of the story is China. China, year-on-year numbers in the first half of 22 were off of record highs from 2021. But we closed the gap in the second half of the year. So once again, while maybe an off year in a couple of the key Asian markets, China and Japan off a bit with Korea still being strong. We have reason for pretty good optimism going into 2023 on pork as well.
7: Exports of U.S. pork variety meat were the second largest on record at more than 530,000 metric ton. If you'd like to see more details from the 2022 export results, go to the USMEF website, USMEF.org. And Senators John Tester, Chuck Grassley, and Mike Rounds reintroduced their Meat Packing Special, Investigator Act. It's designed to fight consolidation and enforce the national antitrust laws. The bill would create the Office of the Special Investigator for Competition Matters within the USDA. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices.
7: You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air, your food.
4: You're going to need our determination, our compassion.
5: You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4 H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4h.org.
1: You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now.
5: A deadline for Mexico to explain their trade decisions. That's coming up on This Land of Hours. Doug McCaleb, the new agricultural trade boss in the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, says he's given Mexico until today, February 14th, to explain the science behind the country's planned ban on GMO corn imports. Market Screener says the response will help the agency decide the next steps to resolve the long-running disagreement over Mexico's biotechnology policies when it comes to agriculture. The next steps could include escalating the dispute settlement process under the USMCA. If it continues, the dispute threatens to disrupt the billions of dollars' worth of corn trade between the United States and Mexico. McCaleb says Mexico rejected 14 agricultural product traits that were submitted to them, and they did not provide any justification. He says, quote, We want to make sure that they do the science, show their work, and make decisions based upon risk assessments. U.S. officials recently warned Mexican officials that America may take formal steps under USMCA. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is
9: the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Often, large ranches or dairies that are on the accrual method of accounting assume that the cost of cattle and cows must be capitalized and depreciated, but that assumption may be only partially correct. How should a ranch or a dairy on the accrual method handle the cost of cattle and cows purchased for dairy production or breeding? Normally, they will need to be capitalized. If they were purchased for resale, they are inventory. But the cost to raise calves born on the farm may be expensed as incurred, even if the accrual method of accounting is used. That's the case if the farm is not a tax shelter. While the tax-shelter rule hardly ever applies in the farm setting, it can if 35% or more of losses are allocated to limited partners. An active farmer is not a limited partner, and if the interest was passed down in a multi-generational family business, it's also not a limited partner interest under the tax-shelter rules. But remember, these exceptions only apply if the animals are produced in a farming business. That can be an issue if a significant part of the income comes from processing or packing milk products, for example. In that situation, check to see whether there is more than a single business and how much income each business generates. Of course, these complications can be avoided if a switch to the cash method of accounting can be made. That might be possible because many times the use of the accrual method is for non-tax business reasons. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen.
10: I was going for parts, and and she was working there, and we made connections.
0: And that's Rob Dove, who says his wife Karen first caught his eye back in 1986 when she was working for the John Deere dealership in Newberry, Indiana.
10: Karen was behind the counter doing book work and things like that, and uh, it's just one of those deals where I was kind of scared, I guess, to ask her out, but I did get up the nerve, and we... Started dating, but it fell together that way. Karen says Rob
0: got some help from some of his friends who worked with her at the dealership.
10: Well, there were two salesmen working there, and I wasn't dating me and he wasn't dating anybody, so they tossed him into asking me out. He came to my parents' house and picked me up, and we went to Bloomfield, Indiana to a drive-in movie. Then he told me the story about it was a terrible time to start dating somebody because of planting season. I told her at the time that was probably a really bad time for me to be even thinking about dating anyone just because it was time to plant and uh, I probably wouldn't be able to see her very much, but she She was very uh, receptive to that, and uh, we seen each other when we could. And as planting season went and had come and gone, we got to see more of each other, and then we got married that winter. For some reason, I always wanted to marry a farmer. I don't know why, but I did. One with a John Deere tractor. (laughs)
0: Today, not only do Rob and Karen farm together and raise over 100 head of black Angus cattle on their farm, but they have two kids, a -a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, and Rob still farms... With a John Deere tractor, I'm C.J. Miller.
4: The new twice-yearly USDA cattle inventory report is pegging the total inventory, the total number of cattle and calves, January 1st at 89.3 million head. The
11: smallest inventory number since 2015.
4: USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagan, who says for the beef side of things, just about every number is down from a year ago. The number of beef cows... Uh, on January 1st, it was just over
11: 28.9 million head, which is about 4% below 2022. Uh, the number of heifers that producers are retaining for uh, beef cow replacement was just under 5.2 million head, which was about 6% below a
4: year earlier. And so, Shackham says, as you can tell from those numbers. From a producer standpoint, apparently, they are still very worried about the availability of forage. And of course, it was drought and poor forage conditions that began this contraction, and those conditions are continuing.
11: I mean, another sign is if we look at another number that was given to us in this report, is the number of, of cattle grazing on small grain pasture uh, in Kansas, in, in Oklahoma, and Texas, and that's down about 5% from a year ago. So again, there are fewer animals that are being overwintered on, on small grains than there were a year ago. And Chagum says to start any kind of action to rebuild the herd, you have to have the forage. And also you have to you have to consider the fact that you have to have water. The cattle require water in addition to, to feed. So if water supplies are tight, if grain supplies are tight, if forage supplies are tight, um, in terms of being able to overwinter those animals, you know, we will continue to see relatively... Uh, Little optimism on the part of some producers in terms of expanding.
4: Meanwhile, Shagum says the number of animals outside feedlots that would be available for placement, that number continues to drop. It's down 2.8% from a year ago. And so as time goes on...
11: Feedlot operators are going to have to bid higher to get those cattle into into, into feedlots. And likewise, as those small number of, of animals manifest themselves in market-ready cattle yeah. after they've been placed and fed out... Uh, you know, packers are going to have to pay higher prices for for the finished animals.
4: And even if drought conditions ease and producer optimism rises, we won't, of course, see the actual result of any expansion as far as beef production until when? It could be very late 2025. More likely early 26. Meanwhile, cattle prices continue to climb. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search AgNet News Hour or AgNet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's AgNet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices.
0: Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with FELS posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated, weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net.
1: Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments.
8: More
12: than 50% of Americans think that estate planning is at least somewhat important, but only 33% have a will or living trust. Estate planning is even more important for farmers as it decides the future of the farm, according to AARP, Oklahoma State Director Sean
2: Voskel.
13: Sound estate planning can ensure the farm continues operating beyond your lifetime or that the assets are passed down or sold in a manner of your choice. Without a good estate plan, you risk a lengthy process for your loved ones who may not also agree with each other.
12: One of the best estate planning options, Voskel says, is creating a trust. When you pass away, the
13: taxman isn't the only one who can take a bite out of the assets that you leave behind. Whether it's cash, real estate, retirement money, or other funds, inherited assets can suddenly come up for grabs in a number of scenarios when creditors and others come calling. Establishing a trust is not only a key way to skip probate court, it can also prevent the assets you've spent a lifetime accumulating from going to predators who might slap your heirs
12: with lawsuits. Boskell says it's also important to title bank accounts and assets properly.
13: If you own joint assets or name beneficiaries on your accounts and assets, a creditor cannot seize what you leave behind. Instead, the money will go directly to whoever is listed on the accounts. But for the unsuspecting who haven't titled their assets properly, there are pitfalls. It's best to talk to an expert to ensure you have done everything correctly during the estate planning process
12: learn more thursday night at 9 p.m central time on rfd tv or online at aarp.org forward slash aarp live michael clements reporting
14: u.s cotton producers intend to plant 11.4 million acres of cotton this spring that would be down 17 percent from a year ago the national cotton council released results of their planning survey taken prior to their annual meeting in the west Total upland cotton acres expected to decline by 33.7 percent, and if realized, that would be the lowest acres on record for Arizona and California. Officials say... Price, of course, has something to do with the decline, but drought conditions and overall water supply also driving decisions. The Cotton Council board members add that the survey is only a snapshot of intentions at the time, but they say history shows producers don't change plans quickly, and the survey has had a high degree of accuracy. Cotton plants are especially sensitive to nutritional deficiencies or excess. And that's why AgriLiquid has developed a cotton fertilizer program to help you get the most out of every acre you do plant. See all the details at AgriLiquid.com. I'm Mark Ophold, wishing you a profitable day.
4: For many home gardeners, this is the worst time of the year. Not a lot to do, but gaze out the window and wait for spring so you can go and buy those transplants and do some planting and work. But some of us just can't wait that long for that, can we?
15: Yeah.
4: Yeah, Kansas State University Extension gardening expert Ward Upham, and when we talked to him the other day, it was perfect gardening weather.
15: We were down to about six degrees this morning.
4: Perfect indoor gardening weather. Uh, Good if you want to grow your own garden transplants from seeds. Now, if this is a first try at growing plants from seed, Ward says you need to have the right containers for planting, some sort of gentle warming system to keep the soil warm, and that soil. He says you need very fine seeding soil, not garden soil. Garden soil does not allow enough oxygen into those seeds. And of course, you need to keep those seeds moist. Now we have two other big suggestions. One of them is sort of strange. We'll tell you about that in a minute. But first, uh, Ward, what's the biggest mistake that people make when trying to start those seeds and start those transplants indoors?
15: Not enough light.
4: Not enough light.
15: A lot of people try to grow plants in the southern facing window and often that's just not enough light. And if there's not enough light, they grow tall and spindly.
4: Yes, tall and spindly, those famous fictitious ballroom dance champions from 1932 that I just made up. But anyway, Ward says we need to go toward the light, not standard incandescent light bulbs, however.
15: Because they put off so much heat, you can't get them close enough in order to get the growth that you want. You're looking at either fluorescent or LED lights.
4: Preferably LEDs made specifically for use as grow lights
15: look what they say on the grow light instructions how far they need to be above those plants so that'll give you additional light that'll keep those plants smaller and stockier
4: okay now here's the kind of odd suggestion to make those plants grow strong and stocky you do what ward upham calls brushing them actually it's sort of well it's almost like well uh, petting them
15: take your hand and just rub them over the top. You don't have to move them a lot, but you have to move them some. And when you do that, that triggers that plant to become thicker at the base and form a better, stockier plant. Probably about 20 brushings a day would be about right. That would be enough that that plant will react.
4: Uh-huh. I'm not sure, though, how my friends and neighbors are going to react to me brushing my little baby seedlings. It might make them think I've gone stark raving mad crazy with uh, cabin fever. <laughs>
15: yeah, it could. Uh-huh.
4: Yeah, <laughs> But do it anyway, he says. <laughs> it will help the plants be strong and stocky as opposed to tall and spindly, who never took a single dance lesson. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
6: Oh, there!
1: This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news, at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drugdisposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. For today's interview segment, we have another episode of the Voices of the Valleys podcast. And in this latest episode, show hostess Johnahue and Candace Wilson talk to Tom Mulholland about the establishment and evolution of Mulholland Citrus.
0: Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety.
12: Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue. I am the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Rainy Salinas, but uh, we don't have any uh, monopoly on rain these days as we record this episode. And once again, joined by uh, my good friend and partner, Candice Wilson. Candice, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. How are you?
12: Terrific. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, our guest today, Tom Mohan, who's the CEO of Mohan uh, Citrus. I like oranges, but you know, when you start thinking about citrus, you start thinking about spring, and right about now, we probably all are with all the weather we've been having. Tom, welcome, and uh, thanks for joining us.
16: Yeah, good morning, Dennis and Candace. Nice uh, to be invited. Thank you.
12: We always try and do a little research on who we're going to visit with. And, you know, when I, a lot of people have a checkered past. You do not. Uh, you really have. Uh, when I look through your uh, bio and website, I mean, your involvement in all things citrus is very impressive, and we certainly want to talk about that. But, you know, you just also have had kind of an interesting journey to starting a uh, your farming operations in the San Joaquin Valley. So talk a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are. And then we're going to follow that up with, let's hear a little bit about your family because, you know, in many respects, I mean, you're almost the positive prototype, quintessential Western growers, uh, multi-generational family farm and how all that plays into what you do. So that's a lot, but let's just start with your past and how you got to what you're doing today.
16: Well, thank you, Dennis. uh, And let me start with the beginning was uh, basically I was three years old. And I was with my three other sisters and my dad put us in the station wagon with mom and moved us up to a little town called Orange Cove. And so we had come out of the L.A. basin and moved to where now there was just pastures. It was basically fences and sheep and cows. And it was an area that hadn't been developed for agriculture yet here in the San Joaquin Valley in the year of 1955. So what had happened that the Frank Kern Canal had been just about finished for two or three years, and irrigation systems had now started being spread off of the canal itself into areas that agriculture could be developed. So this was kind of the beginning of the federal water project, and so. Being a little boy, I didn't really know where I was going. I was just a place to go ride my donkey and, and, to, and play. In the, and so dad started the farm at that time with black-eyed beans, and he did some Milo, and we started raising cotton, and he eventually then started doing the citrus. So by the time he started doing the citrus in the late 50s, I was seven years old, and I started understanding what farming was from that point of view. So to your point, the remarkable part of it is, is I'm still in that same location doing the same thing that I did starting then. So that progression has just been the unfolding of the agricultural world inside of California itself, in a sense, and the vision that, that I've been able to see. So that's but kind I'm of a not, beginning.
12: I'm guessing you're yeah. still not riding donkeys though, right?
16: No, 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 no. We have a little, well, we went to the three wheelers and those are outlawed. So then we went to four wheelers.
12: <laughs> okay, there there you go. Candace, that We're was the first. That. I think that's the first time we've heard anyone riding a donkey.
16: Um, and for sure. That's
4: the first, for sure.
12: So with that backdrop, I'm really struck by two things in terms of your family. One, one, how, you know, you can tell when you look at the website and then just knowing you and knowing Heather, how important family is in the operation. But I also get the impression it really matters in terms of doing business, in terms of the nature of your operation. So that's number one. But then, you know, you're fourth generation. There's really a history of innovation in your whole family, I think, starting with your grandfather, right? in, in LA and just that's really character. It's either in the genes, or uh, yeah. you, you 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 all learned it from one generation to the next.
16: Well, I you know generational pass downs are remarkable. You know, from the Vanderbilts to the Rockefellers to whichever layer you want to look at it and how it goes. But in the fact of it is, is that you have to have something that's of interest. And I think agriculture, we have the best opportunity to do a generational attribute to help people in the families learn that the next generation is just as important as the one before because feeding the people is so important and so for me the fact is that it's two-toned i was too lazy to do anything else other than what i had learned since i was a little kid so that was the good part about it is i did learn as a young kid and could take it on for the rest of my life and i think that in the case of heather she gets to do the same as when i'm gone there's somebody there to take over this same farm that's been there for this length of period my father took the farm away from Los Angeles because urban sprawl had taken over the San Fernando Valley at that time, and there was no room for that generation to farm any longer. So to have a second and third and fourth generation on the same spot in the San Joaquin Valley was an ambition of my father's when he said, I want to go someplace that will never be developed and that more or less did that into the San Joaquin Valley in the fringes of the areas where we are now. So that's a real opportunity for the, even the next generation to come in. And the second part of that is, is you really need a product that's going to be sustainable to pass on to the generations that you would see and think that that's the most important thing. So in the fact that this is agriculture, it is citrus, it's a very important product. We should keep that going long and after the rest of us have had our time with it. And so for me, it's kind of exciting to be able to pass this on and relinquish it and not own it any further. And and I think generations are good. They're very important to what we're talking about. Tell us,
1: because you don't have a very checkered background and you've consistently been part of the family farm. Take us on a journey of the evolution of the farm and you know some of the key milestones that you achieved, some of the key decision points and you know how the farm has changed over the years.
16: Right. That's a good point because when I more or less went to school, which I, I went to college and I earned a degree in environmental studies and urban planning, which had nothing to do with agriculture. And I wasn't ambitious about coming back to the farm because I saw how my father had worked hard and what it took. And so- Then I thought I would go on a tangent. But what happened is we were in a drought in 1976, which was the first stages of drought. And my father was needing some help on the farm. And I went back to help him at that point. And I I more or less never left. But at that point, when we were in the drought in 1976, we had a group of Israelis came over to the farm and started discussing with us the ability to be able to use low volume irrigation which was the most pivotal part of agriculture ever is when PVC and polyethylenes and polybutylenes were put into the ability to put hoses and drip irrigations and controlled irrigation systems versus the furrow irrigation, which the whole agricultural valley had been set up on a 1% grade to provide for furrow irrigation and massive amounts of water used. So now we made this transition and it, it was very poignant for the fact that my father was struggling in the drought, and and I was able then to help him put in an irrigation system straight out of college, not knowing how to glue pipe or how to dig a ditch or do any of these things. And so those transitional that transitional time helped me see the parts of agriculture that I learned to enjoy, which was hard work. Long hours, hot sun, cold winters. But the reward was that you were doing something, and the reward is that you have a product at the end of the day that's very good and uh, very enjoyed by so many people.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices.
0: Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fels Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net.
1: You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The tip for keeping pesticide residue off daily used items. On average, people touch their smartphones more than 2,600 times a day. Martha Sanchez, an environmental justice liaison with the Department of Pesticide Regulation, says doing this one little trick could prevent applicators and their family members from getting in contact with toxic chemicals.
6: You know, one that I shared too was the cell phone. Everybody uses the cell phone, including the pesticide applicators, um, and it's easy just to reach out of your pocket and start using it. Well, unfortunately, they go home and they give that same cell phone to their kids to play a video game and they don't realize that they you know has pesticide residues so one of the tips uh, that I even got from an applicator, he said I put it in a ziplock and when I'm about to use it I wash my hands then I reach out for it and and use it you know because I don't want those residues to get to my family and that makes total sense so I share that whenever i um, is the opportunity arises of, on sharing good information.
3: Applications are now being accepted for Class 53 of the California Agricultural Leadership Program. The 17-month fellowship focuses on mid-career professionals who have a high capacity to lead, a compassion for California agriculture, and an interest in self-growth. Operated by the California Agricultural Leadership Foundation, the Ag Leadership Program is considered to be one of the premier leadership development experiences in the country. Phase 1 applications will need to be submitted by April 19th, with Phase 2 applications being due May 17th. Individuals are encouraged to complete the application as soon as possible. More than 1,400 men and women have participated in the program and are influential leaders and active volunteers in agriculture, government, business, and other areas. Detailed program information is available at agleaders.org class 53 apply. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network.
1: What countries last year were the biggest spenders on U.S. agricultural products? USDA's Gary Crawford talks with Undersecretary of Agriculture Alexis Taylor and USDA economist Bart Kenner in this next report.
6: We are proud that our work opening and maintaining markets has resulted in a new record in agricultural exports of $196 billion last year.
4: USDA's Undersecretary for Trade, Alexis Taylor, giving that news to a Senate Ag Committee hearing the other day. So who's buying all these U.S. products? For that, we talked to USDA economist and trade tracker Bart Kenner, top of the customer list by a pretty good amount. China, which bought during calendar 2022 a record amount of U.S. ag products. And in fact,
10: they have been records for the past three years.
4: Going from about $26.5 billion worth in 2020 to over $38 billion this past year. And that's a big chunk of our total export sales.
11: 19.5% of ag exports have gone to China in 2022.
4: And this is without the Phase 1 trade agreement, which expired end of 2021. Our next biggest customer last year, Canada, taking 16% of our exports. Mexico at 14%. Japan, a distant fourth place, 8%. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgnetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Daniel Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.